Now, as I said, we're doing something a little different here this morning. Uh, we're going to take the rest of this service to do a Q&A. We're at the end of a three-week series on spiritual warfare arising out of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so I, I t- several weeks ago, spoke about how warfare permeates the entire creation. Last week, we dealt with a specific instance of spiritual warfare that's found in the book of Luke. And we've been asking you to uh, send in questions. And we've been collecting those questions. And today, we're going to answer those questions. So I'd like to call my good friend Paul Eddy up and Charlie Swanson up here. Let's go to it. Now, what we've done is uh, we, we got a lot of questions, lot, and really good. This is a smart church. Did you know that we have a smart church and a lot of smart questions, and uh, uh, we can't possibly deal with all those in one service. So what we've done is we've spread out the questions over three services. Um, some of the questions were the same, the one that were asked uh, the most frequently, but Charlie's mixing it up every service uh, just to keep Paul and I on our toes, you know, and, and keep it, uh, you know, just to cover as many questions as possible. Um, but what we're going to do is that we're going to distill all those questions down and put them into like one sermon sort of thing. And so you can download that and get all the questions. We're also going to have another Q&A time on this topic uh, in the fall. So be looking for that. We're not sure when exactly we're going to do it, but uh, uh, we will have that. Because we want to deal with this que- question as much as uh, we can, as thoroughly as we can. Paul and I go back a long way. Uh, I think we first met in 1988, 89 when... Six. 86, when, when he was still uh, a student in seminary and I was a professor. And uh, uh, yes, and, and we've had a relationship ever since. We were kind of covenant brothers. Um, done a lot of theology together, done a lot of research together. We've done several books together. He's helped with a lot of the, the stuff that I've done in, in, in my books. Uh, we've done a lot of spiritual warfare stuff together. We've taught a class for 10 years or so at, at Bethel College on God, evil, and spiritual warfare. And that's why we thought it would really be good to have him up here uh, and, and help answer some of these, uh, the, these questions. We do a lot of Q&A stuff together as well. I'll just say before we get into this, uh, as an opening word, that I don't believe that we could be talking about a more important topic than this one. Spiritual warfare isn't just about what you do when a person is demonized. It includes that. But spiritual warfare is supposed to be the framework for our kingdom life. Uh, We are, in fact, stationed on a planet that's caught in the crossfire of cosmic war. And what God is up to in in becoming a human being in in Jesus Christ and dying for our sins, what he's up to is is defeating the devil and his works, and now he uses his people to carry on that work. Amen? And it makes a world of difference whether you you frame your life experience as 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 a warfare thing, and you're a soldier that's got a very important role to play in that warfare, makes a difference whether you frame it that way or whether you frame it like most Americans do and that that is that life is a vacation and you want to live as comfortably as possible and get as many toys as possible and as much comfort as possible with as little conflict as possible. It's called the American dream. We're called to resist that mindset and live as warriors stationed behind enemy lines who've got a divine mandate on our life to topple down uh, what remains of this enemy empire. So this is an important topic. Paul, what would you like to say before we start? Uh, agree with everything Greg just said. Um, to, if we can come out of this morning with a, a greater sense of both the reality and the importance of spiritual warfare, we, we've done a good thing here. Maybe to add three more dimensions to that, um, part of what we've done this last couple of weeks, collecting questions, we hope, uh, I hope that part of what we come out of here doing is, is creating a more sensible 
uh, spiritual warfare worldview. That when you get into this topic, there's just a lot of difficult questions. We, you can't avoid questions of the problem of evil. You can't avoid questions about the nature of Satan and demons, things we can't even see. So as we process this together as a community, hopefully our, our, our worldview becomes more understandable. Point number one, I hope that this, this uh, morning contributes to. Secondly, I hope it contributes to a sense of balance as we approach mm -hmm. this topic. Um, we can get all charged up about this topic, but as C.S. Lewis notes in his very famous little book, Screw Tape Letters, as soon as we start getting into this world, Satan would want to do one of two things to us. He has kind of two basic strategies to keep Christians out of the war. Either he starts to, to kind of weave uh, things into our life that begin to sort of cause us to doubt its reality. Maybe we leave it as sort of a theoretical belief. I certainly was kind of there for many years of my life until something actually happened that drew me into the war. So he'd love to get us like having three Sundays on this and then kind of just letting it slowly slide into the background again. Not really part of our daily lives. But if you start to engage this, then he'll go to the opposite extreme, according to C.S. Lewis, and he'll try to get us obsessed with him. We see a demon behind every bush, and you get so kind of into the demonic thing, you forget about God as the Lord and Savior and victor over this thing. Somewhere between forgetting about the war and obsessing about the war is walking in the victory of the kingdom, yes. and that's what we want to be after. Third and finally, um, it's not just a set of beliefs we're after today, although we're talking about ideas here today. We want to be doing the warfare. Uh, we want to be recapturing the ground that the enemy's taken in our mm -hmm. minds. We want to be liberating our brothers and sisters who maybe have bondages in their lives. We want to be a kingdom people at this church who don't just talk about warfare for three Sundays, but who walk in lifestyle of mm. warfare. So let's Went do that. Went to the enemy's camp, and I took back what he took from me. Uh, hey, listen, also, if, you, uh, if questions arise as we're answering the questions that have been mailed in, um, we have a table in back of the uh, camera here and also a table in back of the sound booth. And if you want to write out the question and put it on that table, I, I think there's going to be somebody there. I hope there's somebody there. Will somebody please get there to man that table? And, uh, and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. Charlie's here uh, both to read the questions, and he gets to choose what questions we have to answer. He's also uh, empowered to assign a time limit because Paul and I can sometimes try to go launch off into doctoral dissertations on each of these things, especially Paul. He's really bad. And uh, so, so he, he, we're going to try to get through as many questions as possible, so we're going to try to be as succinct as possible, and Charlie is the pit bull in charge of keeping us on track. Arr, arr, arr. All right. Ready to roll? Let's roll. All right. This has to do with something you brought up in another sermon. You pointed out that both the original creation and the creation after Jesus returns will be free of all violence between animals and God. God gave us plants, not animals, for us to eat. Since we're supposed to manifest as much heaven now as possible, I can't help but wonder if we as Christians shouldn't practice vegetarianism. <laughs> Let he who has ears to hear, hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Two minutes. It, oh, two minutes, all right. <laughs> Look, you know, it, it's true that the, the, the first creation was free of all violence. The, the restored creation will be free of all violence. I, I think that's absolutely true. We live in this in-between stage uh, where we're always negotiating uh, this, you know, fallen world and, and the ideals that God calls us to. Um, what I am really sure of is this. Uh, Paul specifically, in two different places, uh, talks against any who would make vegetarianism a doctrine. 
Uh, in 2 Timothy, he talks about that. And in Romans 14, he specifically says that some people you know, think are okay with eating meat. Other people abstain from meat. Let everyone follow their own conscience. Um, and so it falls into the category of a Romans 14 sort of thing where everyone has to seek God's will for their life and follow their own conscience. I, several years ago, uh, became convicted about eating meat. I, I'm a vegetarian. Um, I just felt it was something the Lord called me to do. For me, it was mainly about uh, ridding my life of all violence insofar as that's possible, including violence towards animals. And uh, it was a hard decision for me because I happen to like steak a lot. Uh, I, rare, I mean, I'd always go to restaurants saying, you serve it as raw as it's legal to serve it. I, I like the bloody steak. But God called me to that. And, and, it, and when I obeyed that, it did something in me. It, 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 it took me to a different level. But what God asks of one is not what he asks of everybody. And that's why it's never appropriate to make your own personal convictions kind of the law of the land. And the Bible specifically forbids that. So yes, I, I, as I'm walking with God, this is what he's called me to. But uh, I would never make it a doctrine. Not a lot to add on that, just two points. Um, first, I will support my weaker brother in, in this particular <laughs> issue. Secondly, and the I will also love you for that. follow Jesus and eat meat. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All the carnivores love you. <laughs> All right. Okay, next question. Uh, does it matter if I believe Satan is an impersonal force or a real personal being? Hmm. Want to take it? Yeah. I think it does. Um, in our modern world, uh, including in the church in many sectors, I mean, you can't get away from the fact, if you're going to be serious about Scripture, as soon as you open it. Um, true, in the Old Testament, Satan is, a, is, is only mentioned three times. But once you turn to the New Testament... He's in every book, usually multiple times. You can't avoid the concept of Satan if you're going to take the Bible seriously. What some people in the, in the um, modern period have done uh, who aren't comfortable with the idea of an actual personal entity that's, that's bent on warring against God and his kingdom is they've, they've taken the concept and sort of turned it into a symbol. So it's, it's sort of either an impersonal force or maybe for some people it's just a way of sort of symbolically talking about the self-centeredness in our lives or something like that. But if you're going to follow Jesus' worldview, it, it's unavoidably clear that Jesus believed this entity, uh, known as Satan, was a personal being who had significant power in the cosmos, who formerly was an angel worshiping God, at some point rebelled from God, and that is the archenemy of a kingdom of darkness set against the kingdom of God. Um, to leave that apart or aside from, from the New Testament gospel seems to be a, a huge, huge mm. hole. Uh, love and war seem to be one way of, of, of summarizing what Jesus' gospel was all about. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but always recognizing you're doing that love, that loving of God and loving others in a context of a, of a personal enemy who's trying to, to take our lives back for his kingdom. And I think we lose way too much to just mm. turn us into an impersonal force. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why so many modern folks, uh, especially in the academic realms, the intellectuals, why they're able to believe in a personal God but not in an, a personal devil. Um, I, I, why is that harder? In fact, given how messed up this world is, I'd have trouble believing in an all-loving, all-powerful personal God if I didn't believe in a personal devil. 
Uh, it just uh, explains why this world is such a mess. Another reason why I think it's important is this. Um, if you think that Satan is simply a symbol for sort of evil in the world, and all the evil comes from human beings, then, then uh, it, it would make sense to identify people as the enemy, right? So Satan sort of symbolizes what you're doing, and now you're the enemy. Whereas if I believe, as the New Testament teaches, that there is an enemy against all of us, now even though you may consider yourself my enemy, I can understand how the real enemy is something that holds us both in bondage and apart from one another. And so as Paul says in Ephesians 6, I can now walk in a, in a mindset that says my, my enemy is not flesh and blood. Uh, my enemy is the principalities and powers and dominions and authorities that holds all human beings uh, in, in, in bondage. And, and I want to fight against that enemy in order to liberate both of us from uh, his oppressive power. Amen. All right. Um, does Satan and or fallen angels influence societal problems like racism and poverty? If you read the New Testament in its original context, and I can't say too much about this right now because I only have a minute and 48 seconds left, but... Um, <laughs> And so it's called an apocalyptic worldview that Jesus was ministering in. And they understood very appropriately that all aspects of society are under the influence of angelic beings, good and evil. When Paul talks about the different levels of spiritual authority, dominions and powers and rulers and these various categories of angelic beings, that's what he's referring to. And so there are... Angelic and demonic presences and influences in all areas of society, for better or for worse. And so when we look at poverty and we look at racism, uh, look at all sorts of social ills, we have every reason to think that, in fact, there are cosmic forces that encourage that, that keep that, 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 are, that are over systemic evil. One of the strangest uh, chapters in the Bible is Psalms 82. Uh, but it's strange but also powerful where God is angry. He's holding a council meeting in the heavenlies and he's having a council meeting with the gods, which is just a, an Old Testament way of referring to uh, angelic type of beings. And he's mad at them because they haven't uh, uh, done their job on, on taking care of the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the marginalized. And he, he reams them out and he says, unless you shave up, you're going to die like mere mortals. That tells us that there are uh, beings that are in charge of justice issues and, and social issues. And that tells us that when those things are going wrong, it's because um, humans, of course, have a huge role to play in that. We give them permission to, to use this as pawns. But there's also a systemic dimension to this evil that, that uh, uh, has to do with spiritual warfare. Which is why, when we're dealing with these sorts of issues, we must deal with them on a natural level and make the sacrifices that we're supposed to make and live the lifestyle that, that would minister to the poor, the oppressed, and tear down racial walls, but at the same time realize that in the very act of doing that, we are engaging in spiritual warfare, and to pray that way, and to live that way. Our lives are, in every way, shape, and form, supposed to be lives that are acts of war. Let me just add a, a practical dimension to this. Um, if this is true, and I, it is, uh, biblically, this idea of, of structural, systemic, corporate evil. And see, two things. One, our culture, which is radically individualistic, tends not to think that way. Let's just take the idea of racism. We tend to, in our culture, when we th think of racism, we tend to think of it, as we do everything, on an individual level. Mm -hmm. Are you a racist? Am I a racist? Well, I'm not a racist, right? And so we think, well, if I'm not a racist, 
then, then we've sort of done our job in terms of, of, of challenging that, that, that evil. Not if it's systemic have we done our job. We could have a group of individuals in, in Woodland Hills Church, none of whom think of themselves or do act in any overt way as racist, and yet we can still be living in a society that's dominated structurally by systems of racism that perpetuate themselves beyond individuals. And if we are going to be actively involved in, in the kind of, of, of spiritual warfare against the isms, against the structural evils of our culture that God calls us to, we can't be satisfied with simply ridding our personal selves of racism. We've got to come against the structures of racism in our culture. There you go, man. That's good. Let me add to that, if I can, Charlie, just for a second. Um, if you understand this perspective, then you can look at, uh, see, often Christians think that the atonement, reconciling uh, us to God and to each other, was simply uh, an act of Jesus' death, as though his death was the only important thing. But if, if you understand the warfare principle, you'll see that every aspect of Jesus' life was also an act of war. The way he treated Samaritans and the Roman centurions and the right way he treated women, the way he treated outcasts, those were all acts of war against the principalities and powers, which also tells us this very important principle. And that is that the main way we fight the war is through self-sacrificial acts of love in service to one another. We tear down walls and, and come against the principalities and powers when we act and think uh, and live our life as Jesus did. And so, for example, if I come upon a person who is really exhibiting racist attitudes, um, the, he's not the enemy. Flesh and blood isn't the enemy. Rather, the enemy is the principalities and powers that is holding him in bondage and to some degree me in bondage. But the way that is broken is not by me hating him or trying to beat him up or something of the sort, but by me sacrificing for him and loving him or her despite their, their racism or whatever other sin it may be. It's when we live out Christ's lifestyle that we wage war against the principalities and powers. Amen. 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 We're preaching here, bro. bro. All right, another uh, kind of practical one here. Uh, can premarital sex open a door or a stronghold for the enemy? I would think so, since sin opens doors for demons to operate. Yeah. It seems that the you look at Colossians 2, and it talks about how Jesus, really how Jesus has saved us as an act of war. It says that Jesus took away the rights that Satan had over us. And when, it, when Paul gets into details there, it appears that... The only thing Satan has on us, the only way he has access to us, the only way he keeps us in bondage and in, in addictions is through choices we make that, or others that have made for us sometimes in our lives, but, but you, most often choices we make that put us against God, that, that's the, 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 the choices of sin, that, that we do things that put us outside of the will of God, much like Adam did. He was under God's protection, but as soon as he broke covenant with God, it left him vulnerable to the enemy. So whether that is an issue of premarital sex, which is, again, sex outside of the covenantal bonds that God meant to protect it, or whether it's any uh, choices, patterns in our life that are violating the healthy, gracious principles of love that God has given to us, we are, whether we know it or not or like it or not, we are basically opening doors that can invite the enemy's presence into our lives. Now, that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, I, I could maybe go on vacation, leave my door unlocked, doesn't mean necessarily uh, a, a thief will come in, but it's much more likely. Uh, whenever we leave doorways open in our lives, it's just a, sort of an open door, a sign across our lives that says, enemy welcome, not a wise place to be. As the church, we're called to together, corporately, 
and therefore individually find ways of closing those doors where we've kept God out and finding the, the ways to, to reverse the sort of invitations we put into the enemy's life. Hmm. I, I would just say, uh, along with that, um, I think it's in John 14 where Jesus says, the enemy has no hold on me because I do not sin. And, and, and so the reason why Jesus you know, was, remained totally free was because he was sinless, which tells us that any sin, whether it's premarital sex or, or what have you, is, is one opportunity for the enemy to get a hold of us. Okay, so it reinforces that principle. At the same time, I would want to emphasize that it's important that we don't get into this kind of funky loop that sometimes happens where uh, something happens in your life that's bad, uh, or you know, there's something that seems like it's demonic, and now you start beating yourself up because of some sin you did in the past. Uh, when you are being assailed by the enemy, whatever that looks like, uh, blaming yourself or beating yourself up is never going to be a helpful uh, way to go forward. In fact, the enemy will encourage that. He's into condemnation. The thing to do is just to say, okay, I made a mistake there. You repent of it. Pray against whatever power may have gotten a foothold there. And take whatever steps you need to take uh, in, your, in your lifestyle to prevent that from happening again. Uh, but to wallow in it and to blame yourself for it is just not at all going to be helpful. All right. We had this question several times by email uh, and then some that were written in the last couple of weeks. Uh, in the Old Testament, God uses uh, disasters to punish people, and he sometimes had the Israelites slaughter other nations in war. But Greg, in your sermons, you said that natural disasters and wars happen because the world is oppressed by demonic forces. How can you explain this? How many minutes do I have? Three. Three. Did he say 30? Okay, good. Um, very, very good question. Um, let me say, I think, three things. The first is this. It's true that you find God sometimes using natural disasters, or what we would call natural disasters like famines or earthquakes, uh, to punish his people, the Israelites, or to teach them a lesson to discipline them in some way. But never do you find any biblical warrant for taking those instances and universalizing them to explain all famines and earthquakes and natural disasters. In fact, in the Old Testament, those are always done in a particular covenantal context. God, God is saying, if you follow me, he's trying to teach them in a very concrete way the importance of walking with him, and he says, if you follow me, you'll get blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. And the famines and the earthquakes and things of that sort are part of the curse. But there's no justification for thinking that that's an explanation for the problem of evil. In fact, the, if you look at the Bible as a whole, as I've been trying to show the last two weeks, we have every reason to conclude that, the, that um, when earthquakes and famines and those things happen, at least ordinarily, those are the result of the world being oppressed by demonic forces. The creation isn't operating the way the, world w the way the creation was supposed to operate. Second thing I'd say is this. It's so crucial, however we answer these uh, Old Testament uh, issues of, of you know, God telling the Israelites to slaughter some people and, and the natural disasters, whatever you do with that, it's so important that we understand as followers of Jesus that our whole picture of God is to be given to us by Jesus Christ, not the Old Testament. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? He's the Word of God. He's the image of God. He's the form of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that God spoke in, in, in previous times through the prophets, but in these last days, which refers to this last epoch that we're still a part of, He's spoken to us by His own Son. 
who, in contrast to what happened in the past, the Son is the perfect expression of the Father's essence. In other words, this is what God really looks like. We got a shadow picture of God in the Old Testament. That was a shadow of things to come. But here we get the, 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 the true revelation of what the heart of God is. So our, our, our key to what God is like is to be found in Jesus Christ. Lock that in. The third thing I'd say is this. We, we do need to try as much as possible to explain why the Old Testament has this violence in it when the New Testament forbids it. And, and that's an interesting question. Um, one aspect of an answer, it's not the whole answer, but one aspect that I think is important is this. We in Western culture, as Paul mentioned earlier, tend to be very individualistic in the way that we define people. We define people over and against one another, not in relationship to one another. When we think of humans, we think of individual humans. The Bible, as well as most ancient cultures, doesn't see humanity that way. Yes, there are individuals, but they tend to define people in relationship to one another, not over and against one another. And this is why you find throughout the Bible that God treats family units, for example, as though they were individual people, and nations sometimes as though they were individual people, and even human, humanity as a whole, as though it was, in some sense, one giant person. So, for example, the Bible says that we are fallen in Adam, and that we're redeemed in Christ, as though that there's a corporate person there. Now, all that is to say this. We can think of humanity as one giant person growing over uh, throughout all history. And God has, has a, a, an objective for this whole person. Back at the time when the Canaanites were occupying what is now called the Promised Land, or later came to be called the Promised Land, we can think of humanity as being sort of, sort of at a toddler stage there. And what God saw was this. The Canaanites were, were strategically... They were placed in a very strategic location because all the major trade routes ran through that land. That means that they had an, a, a, a potential to influence other cultures far more than other cultures did. What made this tragic is that the Canaanites were an, an incredibly diabolical, uh, corrupt, barbaric people. They would torture sometimes people for religious purposes and sometimes just for sheer entertainment. God saw that that was pumping uh, vile blood, as it were, throughout humanity. And so here's this toddler of the growing humanity throughout history that needs uh, a radical heart transplant. And so God's plan was to incubate his people in Israel, to grow his people, uh, uh, the Israelites in Egypt, then to take them out and put them in that strategic place. That's why that land is so important in the, old, in the ancient world. And start pumping righteous blood throughout humanity rather than the blood that's being pumped there now. It was a tragic thing that had to happen, but the life of the toddler was at stake. Um, and so I see this as it, when, when the Israelites are commanded to go in and slaughter the Canaanites. It is revolting. It's barbaric. But I see this kind of God's radical heart surgery uh, to keep this growing uh, thing called humanity from getting to the point where it was, uh, you know, several hundred or thousand years previous when God had to destroy the whole thing and start over again prior to the flood. So it was radical, tragic heart surgery, but necessary for the whole. Amen. I'll just add uh, maybe three more thoughts on this. Uh, first, uh, notice in the Old Testament stories where, where, where Israel is, is called by God to do these sorts of things sometimes, God's constantly reminding Israel, even as he's calling them to do this, he's reminding them, first, this is not your battle. You, you don't get to decide or, when you can get angry and, 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 and proclaim holy war on some country. This is 
a rare occasion when I decide that this sort of transplant crisis moment has been right, right, reached. It's never the, the paradigm of what God wants. In fact, you notice that the, really the, the climax, the sort of epitome of, of God's saving Israel from another nation is the Exodus, and there Israel doesn't lift a sword. God simply deals with, with the Pharaoh's armies all on his own might and power. It's not required that Israel even participate in that battle. God's constantly reminding Israel, it's not about your might, it's not about your strength. If there needs to be uh, an intervention of this sort, I'll do it. It's up to me. In fact, he reminds Israel that if you turn against me, the same thing can happen to you. I'm hoping you're going to be the, heart, the new heart, but if your heart goes bad, I've got to have to do something about that. And so oftentimes God is, is having, let's say, Assyria come and, and having to judge Israel because they've walked away from God. He is, in that sense, an equal opportunity destroyer. Uh, thirdly, <laughs> praise Hallelujah. God. Equal opportunity destroyer. Thirdly, all through the Old Testament, you keep seeing that God's mercy, as, as James says in the New Testament, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. The same heart of God is still in the Old Testament. It pains me when I'm teaching at Bethel, and this happens every class that I've ever done, I think, when I, when I ask the students there, tell me about the God of the Old Testament, and then tell me about the God of the New Testament. Inevitably, the list for the Old Testament ends up being things like anger, wrath, you know, like, this, like God had an anger management therapy course between the Old and New Testaments or something. No, the God of, of mercy is still in the Old Testament. Remember what he says, amen. Remember what he says to Abraham in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15, the promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you this promised land, but it's not going to be for 400 years because the sins of the Canaanites are not yet up to the measure where I can judge them. I think that's a statement of mercy. God hoping, giving them 400 years to repent. And when they don't, yes, a heart transplant is necessary. But God's always looking for, mm. for mercy to be given. Let me, the third thing I'll say is, and this is sort of speculative. It's something Greg and I have actually been, been considering the uh, last couple years on this question. Um, there's an interesting passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It's a New Testament passage. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's dealing with a man in the church who's apparently been sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, and, and, you know, pretty heinous. Stepmother. Yeah, at least stepmother. Um, and not, not good. let's hope not, stepmother. Not good, no. and, and he says to the church, I'm, at, I'm telling you to remove this man from your presence. In fact, he says, I've decided to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. I'm willing to, to allow his physical body to be turned over to the enemy, perhaps even die, so that a merciful result can happen. Now, I'm not all sure of what the metaphysics, or what, what that meant about, is there a possibility of after someone dies, their soul, I mean, I, Paul doesn't tell us. He just gives us sort of one sentence. But it would be interesting to apply that back to the Old Testament and ask this question. Could there even behind the most barbaric moments when God is, is having Israel slaughter entire cultures, could there be a, a merciful component there that perhaps God is allowing the destruction and judgment of their flesh so that their souls may be saved yeah. in the day of the Lord. We're not really sure. Then let me just add one Seriously, word. guys. Okay, on. Just, just, on. just one word, just one word. <laughs> or, or maybe two. Because just, just, this is really important. I mean, this was the most frequently asked question. But you'll find this pattern throughout the Bible where God's harsh judgment is, is for the purpose of mercy. It sounds so harsh. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But Paul isn't saying send him to hell. He's saying no, so it, it, with hopes that the person will be saved. And we have reasons, this is so important, 
to, to realize that the judgment of the Canaanites was a historical judgment for the purpose of growing this, this, this humanity. It was not an eternal judgment. It says nothing about whether these people went to heaven or hell or anything of the sort. In fact, if you read uh, Hebrews 11, where you have sort of the, the hall of fame uh, of the heroes of the faith, we find a Canaanite there. Her name was Rahab. And in fact, um, uh, Rahab was a prostitute in Canaan. So however decadent this culture was, and it was decadent, she was actually contributing to it. And the way she made it onto the hall of fame list was by lying. Uh, she lied to protect some Israelite spies who were in Jericho at the time. So I'm thinking to myself, look, at, if a lying prostitute could get into heaven despite being in Canaan, I have hoped that there were other people in Canaan who had hearts that were at least in principle open to God and who, if they had been given the right circumstances, would have responded positively. God knows their hearts and, and uh, we'll be seeing them in heaven. So their, the historical judgment is not an eternal judgment. All right. Okay, do we keep it to three? I, I mean, yeah, a little, not a little over. It's a little bit over. Why do you even ask? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't 30 minutes. Okay. Uh, what is the Woodland Hills Church leadership actively doing and planning for spiritual warfare? Uh, intercession, coming against principalities and powers, demonic works, and Satan's schemes. Well, I, I would just say this. One, we teach on it all the time. Equipping, equipping the saints is what leadership is supposed to do. So we're always equipping the saints about the warfare worldview and, and living in that. Uh, but we're also, I think, getting better at, at uh, approaching it in a more corporate way. For example, we have in the last year really felt uh, the need to uh, uh, pull together a, a broader t uh, prayer team. So that during our services, for example, we have people doing intercession from the moment you walk in the door to the moment you leave. There are people who are praying for this whole thing, realizing that there's warfare that's always going on. And so we're engaging in that way. We're also, uh, our, our care area is uh, this fall going to be um, more, we've always done some of this, but we're going to be much more intentional on, on uh, pulling together a deliverance ministry. Uh, that is, as Paul said earlier, needs to be very balanced. Uh, taking the demonic seriously, but not being obsessed with it, but uh, uh, you know, a, a ministry that's available uh, in order to help people get free from strongholds that are in their life. Those are some of the things that we're doing. Yeah. And also say, and maybe part of this, this is my guilt for the weaker brother comment earlier, but um, yeah. not a lot of guilt. Confess, confess, bit. come on, I want to hear. But, but we have the, the, the privilege, really, of, of sitting under the teaching of, of someone who is recognized internationally as one of the leading authors on this topic today. I love you, I love That was I'll, sweet, Paul. I know, I know. It's uncharacteristic. I'll, I'll pay him later. But I, I think Greg has, has done an amazing amount of, of research biblically and historically, theologically, to help us as a congregation have a balanced approach to this. That's a big piece here. Um, as, as Greg mentioned, with Kevin um, and, and, the, and the care team uh, actually getting up and running a deliverance ministry, uh, this, this coming fall that's going to offer an unbalanced approach to this. Um, but I want to, I again, kind of tying this back into the structural question a bit, let's not just look at, 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 at quote-unquote, kicking demons out of people is the only or even primary way of warfare. Um, every time we come against a, a, a bondage, an addiction, a, a pattern of thought that's unkingdom-like in this church, we are doing warfare. Every time we talk about, as we have and will continue to talk about as a church, how can we combat the, the, the racism and the socioeconomic disparities in this culture? 
We are doing active warfare, warfare against the sorts of things the enemy would love to keep our culture in bondage That's over. Right. So there's a lot of ways when you start broadening up the concept of spiritual warfare that this church is addressing this issue. Good. All right. Um, Greg, this ties into one of your uh, comments in one of your sermons. If God and Satan both claim the same territory, why doesn't God always win? Why doesn't God just take away the power of Satan and fallen angels? Very, very good question, very good question. I, I used to wonder about this a lot. Why didn't, the minute Satan fell and the rebellion took place, why didn't God just like load up his spiritual Uzi and blow those th things out of the water and be done with it? Why does God have to engage in, in strategic warfare? Why in the Bible, um, whenever it talks about God's providence, you'll find as often as not, it emphasizes God's wisdom, not just God's power. Why does God need wisdom to outsmart his enemies if he's, if he's all-powerful, uh, omnipotent, as we say in theological circles? Here's how I think about it. Try this on, and, and get your thinking caps on, because this is a little bit technical, but here's how I think about it. If God gave, as I believe he gave, angels and human beings free will, so that when we, when we love, it means something. We're not just programmed to love, we choose to love. You can't have genuine love unless it's chosen. So God gives angels and human beings free will. Now, what is free will? Think about this. Free will is a, a, a minimally this. I have the ability to choose to go this way to this extent and that way to that extent. I can go this way or that way. Now, if God gave me the ability to go this way or that way, God can't stop me from going that way just because he doesn't like it. Because God, if God does stop me from going that way because he doesn't like it, then clearly he didn't give me the power to go this way or that way. You following this? Yeah. It's a contradiction. If God, if God just revokes my ability to go that way to a certain degree uh, because he doesn't like it, well, then I don't have the power to go this way or that way. It, it's as contradictory to think that God just unilaterally revokes free will and, and uh, because we misuse it as it is to say that God creates a married bachelor or a round triangle. It's a contradiction in terms. It's not an issue of God's power. God has the power, because he's all-powerful, he has the power, power to end everything right now. He has the power to revoke free will. The question isn't how much power does God have. The question is, what kind of world did God create? And if God creates a world where there are genuine free agents who have say-so in what comes to pass, and we can go this way to, that ex to this extent and that way to that extent, then that is, by definition, a world where God can guarantee that he's always going to get his own way. And it's a world where God will have to put up and work around and be wise in working around the bad decisions that angelic beings or that human beings make. Uh, and that, I think, is why his providence is one of, of, of wisdom, not just uh, sheer power uh, over others. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the importance of this question because I, I think this question lurks in the back of a lot of people's minds. I know it does in students of our class over the years a number of times because you get this sense that, okay, if this is a real war, like, like it really is, 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 is something hangs in the balance, then that must mean that God and Satan are almost equal. Like, ooh, who's going to win here, right? But then you go, well, that can't be true because it's not like there's two gods. There's only God and then this created creature, Satan, who fell. Well, that must mean it not, must not be a real war because God's all-powerful and he could do it, so he must be sort of having a play war with himself. Which is it? Well, it's neither, right? But, but the problem is, how do we have an analogy for this? 
And so I'm going to give you one that isn't perfect. In fact, analogies always break down. This might break down pretty quickly. But I think it captures the, the way in which there can be a real conflict, a real conflict, even though the parties don't have the same power, but the one with the most power doesn't use all their power for other reasons. Take, for example, a, a first world country who has nuclear capabilities, pick anyone you want, and imagine them in a, in a skirmish or a war with, with a smaller country who, who only has conventional weaponry. Now, that, that's happened a number of times over the last century, right? I mean, whether it's Soviet Union in Afghanistan or whether it's us in Iraq right now, you can imagine that scenario. Why doesn't the nuclear power, if it's a real war and they really want to win, go in and just nuke the place? They don't usually, thank goodness. But does, do we then lead to the conclusion of going, oh, it must not be a real war because they're not really trying that hard. No, they're, they're losing lives. They're putting a lot of time and energy. It's a real war. Why doesn't it happen? Because there's a higher principle than winning at all costs. There, there's, there's a morality question, right? That prevents nuclear powers from just decimating smaller countries. <clears throat> Same thing with God. He has all the power in the world to stop the war anytime he wants. But there's a higher principle that prevents him from doing that, namely the principle of freedom for the purpose of love. And that, there, there will come a day when the war ends, and, and it will come, to, but only when God's timing has produced a kingdom and a people that come out of the freedom for the purpose of love, mm -hmm. and we live in that, that yeah. tension of the in-between world. One way that this is really important theologically is this. It means that when there's a particular evil that happens, you don't need to be asking the question, why did God in particular allow that? Uh, once you understand that, free, that, that love requires freedom, you've got the answer to what free agents do. If I right now pick up this chair and bop Paul Eddie on the head and cause irreversible brain damage, you can ask me, Greg, why did you do that? But you don't need to sit there and say, gosh, what, what was God's purpose in allowing that? As though God wanted that to happen. God didn't want that to happen. Uh, but I might have. And so God gave me free will, and we can say something about why he did that. But once you've answered that question, you no longer have to be wondering, you know, what was God up to when evil agents did evil things or when they flew planes into buildings or, or, or whatever evil act you want. That's about what people do. It's about maybe what, what demonic beings uh, influence, but it's not about God. For 10 years in our classes at Bethel, have you used the picking up the analogy, hitting Paul in the head thing? Could you? And we do it. Sorry, all right, we got about 100 questions here. Okay. So if you guys can just tighten it up. Okay, okay. The, the pit bull has spoken. All right. Okay, this is actually, there are two questions here that are really similar, so I'm going to try to combine them. If God created the angels, they would have been in the spirit realm and would therefore, would therefore know a lot more about God than we do. Um, if that's the case, why did Satan leave heaven? Did he really think that he was more powerful than God? Also, why did some angels follow him? Why would they choose to fall? And they don't want to hear because of free will. <laughs> there must have been... That's all I got. <laughs> there must have been something about God that they didn't agree with. How could that be? If he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all, all that. You want to take a Take first? a crack at it. Take a crack at it. We don't have a lot of information scripturally uh, on this. We have none. This. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Check out Revelation 12. Uh, we have an entire chapter, pretty much, um, that comes as close to describing the, the, the original war in heaven as we're going to get, scripturally speaking. We also have two passages. Um, 
Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, 28 that I, I, we, we, we believe in, in a sort of a veiled way gives some insight into it. It's, it's not a, a blueprint of what actually happened. But in those passages, you, you get this sense that whatever was going on in Satan's mind, it, it's different from our situation. Satan was in the very throne room of God. When, when that war happened, it wasn't on a little planet Earth. It was in heaven. In fact, Revelation 12 says the effect of that was that God uh, called Michael and, and, and the good angels to war against Satan and, and, and his evil angels. And it says Satan was not powerful enough to overcome them, and there was no place found for him in heaven. He was thrown down to the earth. He was actually kicked out of heaven. Interestingly, it says that a third of the stars were swept away by the tail of the dragon. Of course, symbolism for Satan there. Um, in the ancient world, stars represented, uh, ancient people thought stars were actually living angelic beings. So whether the, 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 the numerics is actually literal, it seems to be saying that Satan took with him a, a portion of, of the good angels who turned with him in the rebellion. The Old Testament passages, the closest thing they come to giving a reason why Satan did this is there's a passage that said that um, although Satan, at that point Lucifer, uh, an angel of light, was in the very throne room of God walking in the original Eden, it says that, that something was found in his heart that when he looked upon God and saw the worship was being given to God, he wanted that for himself. There was no, no outside tempter on this one. See, when, when, when Adam fell, there was at least Satan being an outside tempter. You're going to be able to say that. But this was just a clear case, apparently, of, of no sin ever happening. This was the first sin of someone just saying, what God has, I want. And in a sense, isn't that what Satan has used for every temptation that's ever followed from that? Uh, it doesn't matter. He doesn't care what it is. As long as we're willing to substitute our love and, and, and obedience to God for something else, that loops us into that same original sin in some sense. Closest we get in scriptures to, to an answer. In this question. And, and we look at it and you think, how could he have been so stupid? Uh, you know, if God's all beautiful, you know, how could he not just be enraptured by the beauty and not see how dumb it was to think he could ever fight against God? And it really seems profoundly stupid. And sin is stupid. <laughs> Whenever we sin, we're stupid. Uh, and, and this does come down to free will. We have the capacity to choose to create in our own minds a scenario that's entirely implausible and entirely stupid, but we do it, and we go down that path. Uh, so it does reveal the stupidity of sin, and it's mind-boggling, but then again, we do it all the time, so it shouldn't surprise us that Satan did it. <laughs> Doesn't that encourage your hearts? <laughs> <laughs> all right, next one. Over the next couple weeks, our church is doing baptisms. Uh, what does this have to do with spiritual warfare? And then also, someone else today asked, do we need to be baptized to be a Christian? Uh, good question. Um, off the top of your, my, you know, your head, you might not think baptism has much to do with spiritual warfare. Uh, what baptism is, is, at least how the early church, and clearly the New Testament saw it, was it was basically the initiation ceremony into the body of Christ. Uh, baptism was given immediately to someone who had made a conscious decision to turn from the ways of the, this world and to turn to Christ and put their trust in him. And immediately, once someone had repentance and faith, they were then baptized in the early church. What's interesting is the way Paul describes baptism in Romans 6 uh, is, is the, this really interesting imagery of, of someone who, 
who gets into the water, and Paul says, do you not know that those of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death so that you rise up in a newness of life? Now, if you catch the imagery there, what the image is, is someone going into the water, going under the water, and drowning. Well, whatever goes in stays in there. It doesn't come up. It drowns. It's dead. And something entirely new comes up, and that's the, the, the new life of Jesus Christ. I would say, in a spiritual warfare context, we could look at baptism as the first declaration of war that someone makes when they move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. They've turned toward God. They've said, I'm going to trust in you. And in walking into the waters of baptism, they are drowning to the old life of the kingdom of darkness and rising up to the new resurrected life of Christ in the kingdom of God. And that is a significant act of, of, of statement of warfare to the enemy and, and, and to, to anyone who's, who's bothering to pay attention to what's actually going on mm -hmm. in the symbolism of baptism. So I'd say, if there's anyone in, in the kingdom here who has not had the opportunity to, to declare that, make that first act of war, baptism is fundamental to that. Now, the second question was, is it necessary to, yep. to being a Christian? Yep. You know, that's been a long debated question in church history. And uh, it may be that, uh, although I'll rarely say this about Augustine, he, he might have got something right here. Uh, Augustine, it's possible. We're, we're still impossible. researching this. But, but he said, um, it's not the abs absence of baptism that, that he actually that damns a person, that sends them to hell. It's not the absence of baptism, he said. It's the despising of it. In other words, I think Augustine knew about the thief on the cross who literally converted on the cross and couldn't get down off the cross to be baptized before he died in a few minutes. Uh, and that wasn't going to keep him out of heaven. But if someone who could be baptized knows it's important and just kind of blows it off and says, ah, this is not for me, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that sort of attitude to baptism, that sort of cavalier, I don't need it sort of attitude is okay. So I certainly am not going to make any judgments about people's salvation on this. That's certainly God's business. But clearly, Jesus, Paul, the entire New Testament says, when you become a Christian, you should start looking for some water to immerse yourself in in order to publicly symbolize this death to the kingdom of darkness, life to the kingdom of God, and to make that statement not just to your community and to God, but even to the powers of darkness that they see you declare this act of war. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, I, I never like the qu questions, I mean, I, I affirm the question there, but I, I'm always concerned about questions where it's like, uh, where it has kind of a flavor of, do I really need this to be saved? Like, what's the minimum deal? I, I think that's, that's always the wrong question to ask. Like, how much can I get away with? What's the least amount I can do? Um, the question really is, is it necessary for salvation? Uh, the, the question would be, because you know, the Bible's really clear that it's our faith, it's our relationship. It's not a magical formula or a magical ritual that saves you. It's your faith. But on the other hand, given that you have this faith in Jesus Christ and are submitted to him, why, what would prevent you from doing this? And maybe that you just have a different understanding and God understands that and he'll grow with you. But if there's an unwillingness, uh, like a stubbornness, well, then I want to talk about the stubbornness. It's really not about baptism. It's about well, what, what is this? And, and I want to look at that. Going back to the exorcism piece, it's really interesting in Colossians chapter 2 where Paul talks about baptism being kind of New Testament circumcision. He right there launches into, when he talks about how God has redeemed us, he launches onto one of the most beautiful uh, statements on warfare in the whole New Testament where he says that when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, everything that was written against us was nailed to the cross, and therefore he disarmed, took away the weaponry of the principalities and powers over us, and he made them a laughingstock. And see, what baptism does 
is, is you're taking what happened on the cross and applying it to yourself. And so it is a declaration of war, even while it's also a declaration of victory. Yeah. And in the early church, uh, for the first four centuries, they saw it as really a form of exorcism. Uh, they, uh, when people would go down into the water, at least in, in the Eastern church, they did this. Uh, they would ho hold their wrists like this, or, or sometimes just like in the shape of a cross, and plugging their nose if they went down in the water. And then when they came up out of the water, you find this in Hippolytus. He tells the, 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 the people being baptized to do this. You, you go like this to show that you've been set free. The, the, the hands being crossed both symbolizes the cross, but also symbolizes kind of you know, being in chains. And when you come up out of the water, you declare that you're free. Uh, because that old self that was in bondage to the devil is dead, and a new self has risen in its place. Just as to, to repeat uh, from the announcement today, uh, we have another uh, baptism coming up a week from tomorrow. And if anyone is, is interested, um, I'm actually teaching the class uh, next Wednesday night and then Sunday morning before the baptisms. Would love to have anyone join us who hasn't had this first declaration of war. Shameless. Amen. Plug there, by the way. <laughs> ah, it's, a, it's a proud plug. We're doing all front. We are plugging baptism. All right, now you know. <laughs> all right. Um, this is one that somebody just asked today. Uh, but it was also something that was sent in. Can the devil read your mind or know your thoughts? If not, then where do awful thoughts come from, and why do they seem to come when we're at our weakest? P.S. You rock. Huh. <laughs> you want to take that one first? Well, this is, this is interesting, because we almost always end up, I remember talking about this in our, in our class at Bethel, and I think this is one of the few things historically you and I have disagreed on. I don't know. I don't so, Greg's wrong on this, but... Um, <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> I, I've had experiences, and that's all this is. I mean, who knows for sure. But I've had experiences that have, that have led me to believe that I won't be surprised if it turns out that the demonic uh, can read our thoughts. Now, why I say that is I've had certain experiences, usually alone, late at night in dark rooms, uh, where I, just, I feel the enemy all over me. And one particular night in this, in case, in the, uh, that, that sort of exemplifies this for me, I, I was petrified. Uh, I woke up, I just had this sense of this presence of evil, and it was that kind of, of, of kind of stunning fear at the moment. Why I couldn't say a word. I wanted to say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Uh, but all I could do was think that, and finally begin to think in my mind, uh, you know, enemy, I rebuke you, but I, I didn't say a word out loud. And as, as soon as I began to, to call on Jesus and began to, to think these sorts of things, I could pretty quickly sense the, the, the sense of, of evilness begin to dissipate, and within a while it was gone. Now, it could be pure coincidence, but I'm thinking maybe uh, the demonic was able to even get my thoughts. But Greg has another answer. Did that happen last night? Or, or <laughs> <laughs> How often do you struggle with this demonic attack in the middle of the night? Um, you know, the... the, the the more I study this stuff and am into this, the more I realize we don't know much of anything. Uh, we, we really just see the, the, a, a molecule on the tip of the iceberg. Um, and so I, I just go on basis, what do we know? And I don't see anything in Scripture that leads me to, to conclude that Satan or demons can read our minds. They're certainly not omniscient. They don't know everything. I don't know how they know what they know or whatever, but I just don't see any evidence of that. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure what it would help to think that they do, other than maybe make some people freak out a little more, which I'm always careful, yeah, I don't want to do. Um, that, uh, I, like, I, I don't know 
there's enough uh, stimulation around us that he could manipulate to cause us to think, you know, bad thoughts. And our own habitual thinking can cause us to bear, not every time you have a bad thought or something, it's, it's a demonic thing. It could be dem demonically inspired, but I don't need to think that he can read our minds to do that. He just can influence our minds. And so, um, and in this case, in the case of what the Paul just gave, it, does, it occurs to me that it wouldn't be the case that Satan would necessarily have to read Paul's mind uh, to, you know, to, to explain the, uh, the relief from the demonic oppression that he felt. It's just what we need to assume is that God can read Paul's mind. And God, God, Paul's calling out to, uh, to God, so God comes in and fleshes out the room. So I, I just, I, I've never seen any conclusive proof or argumentation that demons or Satan can read our mind. And um, so that, I just leave it an open question, but I'm inclined to say no. All right. Why are some prayers answered and some not? If I pray for someone who's gravely ill and they die, how can I keep from falling into the trap of blaming myself, thinking I didn't pray enough or have enough faith, etc.? Uh-huh, 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 huh. Um, how many minutes? An hour? Okay. Um, here, this is a very, very important question. Uh, we address it with some frequency here at Wilderness Church, so I can be a little more brief here, but it's very important. What, what's, what's most important is this, that the standard way of looking at this is that when you pray, if it's not answered, it's either because God didn't want to answer it or because you didn't have enough faith. That's kind of the standard thing that's out there. Uh, and so you're praying for someone who's sick, and if they die, some groups would say, well, it must not have been God's will to heal them. And that has some biblical problems. It goes against the whole pattern of Jesus' ministry. Others would say, well, no, it was God's will to heal them, but you didn't have enough faith, or the person you were praying for didn't have enough faith. What we need to know, and I talk a lot about this in my book, Is God to Blame?, is that the world is a lot more complex than that. There are a multitude of other things that affect what comes to pass. I can know with confidence, because the Bible tells me, that faith is powerful and effective. That's James 5.16. It always furthers the kingdom. I don't believe there's such a thing as a sincere but wasted prayer. It always moves forward. But it doesn't guarantee a result because there's a number of other things that go into play here. Faith is one variable. What God sees as possible in a situation is another variable. But there's also uh, things like the demonic realm, for example. Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 10. Um, he had faith. God answered the prayer, dispatched an angel, because God, being a social God, almost always works through mediaries. But then the angel was detained 21 days by this being called the Prince of Persia who interfered with the, the, the answer to prayer. And uh, then Michael, the archangel, had to be called over in order to relieve that angel to dispatch the message. And when the angel shows up to Daniel, he says, I'd love to stay in chat, but I've got to go back because now this other demonic being called the Prince of Greece joined us. And so here we see that interference in the, in the spiritual realm has something to do with when and how and whether a prayer is answered. The strength of forces resisting you, the number of forces resisting you, has something uh, to do with when and where and whether a, a prayer is answered. The number of people are praying, the persistence of prayer, the strength of prayer. All these variables you can find right in the Bible affect what comes to pass. Um, and so at the end of the day, we have to say that we don't know, can't know, why one prayer is answered and another prayer is not. You can't know. But you can know that it's not an arbitrary thing on God's part. It's, it, it, rather, the world is so complex and mysterious that uh, we just have to respect that ambiguity. And, 
and admit that, that there's a lot of things we just can't know. What we must know is the character of God, and what we must know is that every prayer that we have is, uh, is powerful and uh, effective. That same reasoning should cause us never to blame ourselves when something doesn't go the way we pray, prayed. You do your best and leave the rest. Um, and it, it is as erroneous to blame yourself because a prayer wasn't answered as it is to blame God because a prayer wasn't answered. The, the wise thing is to do is to do your best and then just say, we don't know, um, and, uh, and, and, and go on with life. I have nothing to add except to say amen. And that this uh, way of seeing unanswered prayer, this multiple variables way of approaching this, I think is so absolutely essential to, to maintaining an ongoing, vibrant prayer life. Um, I was doing a, a talk using this, this approach uh, a couple years ago at Bethel in, in one of the dorms for a couple of weeks, a series on unanswered prayer. And on the first night that I started the series, um, some students were kind of, I was kind of getting a feel, were people on this? Well, does it happen? There was a student in the room whose father was, was dying of cancer. And the whole dorm had sort of made this a, sort of a, a common prayer uh, focus over the last several weeks. And it was getting worse and worse and worse. Before I ended the series, a couple weeks later, his father had passed away. And so this became like kind of a crucible moment of was my theory at all helpful to these students? And being able to lay this out um, as I talked to them and process this over the next few weeks really enabled them to see, one, it wasn't like God was this arbitrary God who did not care for his father because he didn't get healed on one hand, but nor was it like it was their fault for this. They were able to really see the complexity of this, and it really, I think, helped help them work through the problem of this particular issue, but also, uh, just as importantly, keep maintaining a, a prayer life of, of active hopefulness as, as they entered into things. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really important uh, issue that needs to be, needs to be addressed. And I, I'll just add this, that uh, given the complexity of the world and how much we don't know, which by the way is what the book of Job is all about, okay? It's just how we human beings have such a limited perspective, we just can't know why things come to pass the way they do. But it's not because God is arbitrary, it's because the world is so mysterious. But in that, what faith is, is not psychological certainty that what you're praying for is going to come to pass. That model of faith has just done so much damage. Uh, because now when, it, when your father dies and you've been praying for him, you think, well, gosh, I didn't have enough faith. And on some level, almost everybody knows that they can't possibly be guaranteed that what they're praying for is going to come to pass. And then they indict themselves for it. They blame themselves for it. Faith is, faith is a move towards vision in your head. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of things not seen. To have faith is simply to say you believe this is God's will and you're pushing towards it. You envision it in your mind as a concrete reality that, that produces an energy that, that, that causes you to, to push in a certain direction. And prayer is partnering with God to push the world in a kingdom direction. It may or may not have the specific results you're praying for, but it's not because of a lack of faith if it didn't happen. It, it, it's just because of all the variables that, that affect creation. And the other thing that to, to, to bear in mind is, is to have an eternal perspective on this, that eventually you do get healed. Uh, and it, it, it's just that it didn't happen in this, in this life. But it does your heart good to know that in the end, God is victorious, Amen. and uh, all these things you pray for will come to pass. Do demons war against angels? Do angels protect us from demons? How many are there in relation to angels? Ah, the mathematics of the whole thing. Um, that set of questions, I, I, in terms of a biblical response, I don't know how you could get any better than going to Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 12, which is 
probably the most detailed um, description we have of the so-called war in heaven. Talks about uh, Satan, uh, talks about there being a war in heaven and Michael and his archangels. Interesting, not God, but Michael and his archangels going to war with Satan and his angels. And it says that Satan was not able to withstand them and that um, he was thrown out of heaven, down to earth, as a matter of fact. Um, so do angels and demons war? According to Revelation 12, absolutely. Also reflected in Jan Daniel chapter 10, mm -hmm. we have these, these two demonic entities, actually probably principalities and powers, trying to stop God's angelic messenger to Daniel and actually succeeds in stopping him for three weeks until Michael, a stronger angel, comes and breaks in. And there's a holy rumble going on up there that Daniel's not even aware of until three weeks later. So yeah, there's apparently an entire realm of, of combat that we, we aren't even aware of. Uh, in terms of the number, um, the closest we can get to even speculating on this is there's an interesting verse in Revelation 12 that says, when Satan fell from heaven, it says he swept a third of the stars with him with his tail, and they too fell down to earth. Now we know in the ancient world that stars were believed to be actual angelic beings. And so it's probably not a, not a, a stretch to say that probably the, Revelation, the author of Revelation is telling us that one-third of the angels who were with God joined Satan in his rebellion and became what we now know today of as evil principalities and powers. The good news there would be that they're outnumbered two to one. Uh, so. But of course, in, in the book of Revelation, you've got to be a little careful because most of the time the numbers aren't meant to be taken literally. They're symbolic for other things and whatever. But still, the, the principle w would apply there. Um, the only thing I would add is this, uh, and it kind of goes back to the previous question. I, there certainly is warfare in the heavenly realms, and I think angels are given charge over us. The Bible tells us that it, various angels at various levels have, have a domain of authority to, uh, to protect us. Um, if you read Psalms 82, uh, there, there are angelic beings whom in the Old Testament they more often call gods, not the creator god, but gods with a little g, and their, their, their job was to administrate social justice and care for the poor and things of those sort. What's really interesting in Psalms 82 is they weren't doing their job really good, and so Yahweh starts to ream them out. So there's a, a domain of authority there. But now consider this, and just I, I emphasize this to show you how little we know about the world. Michael the archangel in Daniel 10 had to come and rescue, or had to relieve this angel to deliver the message to Daniel, right? Now, what was Michael the archangel doing before he got there? We don't know, but he's doing something, and he's doing something good because he's a good angel. Maybe he was overseeing a town, let's suppose. He's guarding a town. Now, all of a sudden, he's got to go back and, uh, and uh, 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 you know, fight this battle in the heavenlies. Now, the town's unprotected. Now, who knows what happened, but it's possible that that would allow some evil forces to get in there and screw some things up. No doubt the people in the town are saying, what do we do to deserve this? And the answer is, they didn't do anything to deserve that. It just happens. You see, in this kind of world, that kind of stuff happens. It's no different than, than what happens in earthly warfare or what happens in everyday life. And all that is just to say that when disaster happens and tough stuff breaks out, we shouldn't be pointing the finger at anybody or pretending like we have a crystal ball or a tarot card that we can discern what's going on in the heavenlies. Unless God gives you a very specific word of information, you just shut up and do kingdom stuff and uh, res respect the, your massive ignorance about most things concerning the spiritual realm. There. Shut up and respect your massive ignorance. Yes, there's, there's a quote for the night. I we got to know what we don't know. We don't know a whole lot. <laughs> wow.
Don't point the finger at anybody. Okay. This is kind of a combo question. We had several that were uh, related. What do you think of books like Harry Potter and others that deal with witchcraft and other areas of the occult? Can a person become vulnerable to demons by reading this type of literature? Does playing video games that involve things like witches and demons open a door to the, de door to the demonic? And what do you think of games like Dungeons and Dragons? It's ah. a good question, one Greg has thought a lot about and would love to. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, look at Thank you, Paul. See, here, here's what I suspect is probably true. There are probably uh, some in this room who are hanging on their seats right now saying, this is the time for you to blast Harry Potter as demonic. There's probably others in this room who are saying, I hope he doesn't blast Harry Potter because my kid finally got into reading because of Harry Potter. And we can have passionate opinions about these kind of things, which means they fall under the category of Romans 14. Right? In Romans 14, Paul lays it out there saying, some people think that it's okay to drink wine, others not. Some people think it's okay to eat meat, others not. Uh, let everyone go according to their own conscience and don't judge one another. Uh, and so we have to just kind of respect that people can have differences of, 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 of opinion on this. If you want my opinion on it, yeah, I shouldn't even give it, but I'll give it. Um, yeah, you, you know, the, here's the thing, is that uh, fantasy literature throughout time has always involved magic. Even, you know, in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, there's always magic, and, and there's the good magic and the bad magic, and, and that's kind of just fantasy stuff. And uh, I, I think that's kind of good for kids' stimulate, you know, mental stimulation and imagination and even to kind of begin to see it in a warfare context. What you want to be careful of, parents uh, especially, is that um, they are always aligning on the good side and that they're really clear about how this is fantasy and you, you shouldn't begin to... Uh, especially on the bad stuff, start to dabble with it in your real life. And I guess that's the general principle, I would say. If there's any inclination to, for a kid to start dabbling in it, you know, because they got curious about it, uh, you need to warn them about that. And if, if it continues, then maybe I'd say, maybe you want to, you know, stop that kind of influence, stop that kind of game playing, stop that kind of reading. Uh, but generally speaking, you got to know your children and know what they can handle. And, and it's the parent's job to set the context uh, in which this will be a helpful thing in their life, not a harmful thing. Paul, would you like to add to that? With your no. You like that? All right, this is one that somebody asked tonight. As you've mentioned, the Bible addresses us as groups and not individuals. What can we as Christians do, and how should we address spiritual battles in cases where God has lifted his hand of protection over our nation? I'm, I was first on the last question, so this is probably <laughs> Paul's chance to be first. <laughs> um. Well, I think uh, along the lines that Greg has, has challenged us here as a congregation over the last several years, um, to think of our citizenship as Christians, as, as those who've, who've died to the principalities and powers of this world, the kingdom of darkness, and have, have risen up into a new kingdom, a new life, that first and foremost, our citizenship is fundamentally in, in the kingdom of God, no matter what nation we happen to be born into on this planet. Uh, there's, there's believers, brothers and sisters in every nation, uh, and in every nation um, there's, there's both kingdom people and there's, there's kingdom of darkness stuff going down. It's always a mixture. And so, um, you know, God through history uh, is, is dealing with nations and the enemy is trying to woo nations to him, and, and there's, there's, it's always a mixture and a mess. Um, it seems to me that in terms of the corporateness of this question, the fundamental corporateness we have to be concerned about is the corporateness of the church. 
how do we, as the body of Christ, in any particular locale where, where, where we are a church, an, an actual gathered body like here at Woodland Hills, how do we do warfare together? Um, and, and how do we push and advance the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our sector of the world that God's allowed us to be. It's, it's a question that, that every group of believers has to ask no matter where they're found on this planet, what nation they're in. Um, I guess God's dealings at the meta level, you know, what he's actually doing with nations is, is, is his business and we are to, as the Bible says, constantly pray for our nation, whatever we find ourselves, pray for leaders, for wisdom there, but never to, to, to be confused that our primary calling and citizenship is the kingdom of God and, and the warfare there. Um, and I think tonight is, is a great example of how we can, as a corporate body, think about and begin to practice warfare by putting it out on, as a conversation topic is the first thing. By having a senior pastor who writes about it and addresses it in sermons is the first thing. Um, and for us inviting each other into the conversation like tonight is, is a great starting point. I, I think that that's really good. Um, our main solidarity, our main corporate entity is, is the body of Christ, not the nation we happen to find ourselves in. And so the body of Christ has to take responsibility uh, for obeying the scripture, praying for your leaders, as the Bible says, and all those other kind of things. I'm very hesitant uh, to ever claim to know too much about when God's protecting a nation and when God's not protecting a nation or anything of the sort. Um, for this reason, it's, I, I think there are biblical principles that if a nation walks with God, there'll be more blessing. If it doesn't walk with God, there'll be less blessing. Gotcha. I think that, that, that's a you know, good thing. He always honors godliness. At the same time, what I know is that it's very hard for people in any nation to be critical of their own nation. And so we tend to see our good stuff, but we don't tend to see necessarily as clearly our, the, the evil stuff. And so we might think that we deserve to be protected because we're so godly. Uh, one could make the case you know, that, well, that, that, that this nation in particular in some, some areas in the areas that are very big on the Bible list in terms of gravity of sin, falls far short in terms of, you know, in fact, if you look at the main reason why God ever judged Israel was because of greed. You have more food than you need, and you're not sharing with the people who don't have enough. You're hoarding resources. Uh, one could make the case that if there's any sin that America's guilty of, it'd be that one. Uh, now, how, how do I know how that ranks in terms of other things that we do well? I, I don't know, and that's why... Um, I, I don't try to get into what Paul calls the meta story, how God is dealing with nations. That's God's business. Let him do that. It's enough for me to know that it's my job as a kingdom person and it's our job as kingdom people to further the kingdom of God wherever we happen to be born in whatever nation we're in, to pray for our leaders, mainly for peace. The Bible says pray that there'll be peace so that we can spread the gospel and, and just do what we're told and not try to figure out what's going on uh, amidst all the nations and stuff like that. That's, the, that's again why when a disaster strikes our nation, I, I would encourage everybody that I have any influence with never to think that, that, that you know that that's because God lifted his hand of protection and that he lifted it because of those particular sinners. I don't think there is a worse thing we could do uh, in terms of representing Jesus Christ to our culture than to do that. And that one I'm so passionate about, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. All right. so, not all audience would clap after that one. <laughs> if I hate someone so much that I don't even want to hear their name, does it mean I'm in bondage, Paul? <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> um, let's, let's take that word bondage for a minute there, because that can mean a number of things in this 
context of the topic we're talking about tonight. Um, for some people, as soon as you say bondage in a spiritual warfare context, they immediately think of, of possession or, or you know, that kind of demonic, demonized bondage. Um, I don't, I think someone can have a profound hatred towards someone uh, without being, per se, inhabited by a demon. Um, they may be, but I think uh, one can certainly have that hatred apart from being directly demonized, let alone possessed. Um, so uh, th here's where an example where we've got to be careful uh, about how we use or, or um, talk about bondage and demonization. I know a lot of folks who get into this topic and really start to believe it can start to sort of use it as an excuse. Yeah. Like, well, the devil made me do it, you know? I, I, no responsibility. Well, no, not true. Um, usually, if there's a, a bondage in one's life, usually, not always, but usually, it's because we've opened a door and invited that bondage in. What, what today is a, perhaps a profound hatred probably started with a little seed of bitterness once that was never dealt with, mm -hmm. where forgiveness was never given, where confession was never made. Um, and, and, and if that's happened, if that has grown into a profound hatred, whether it's a demon or not, the way to undo that is by doing what one should have done in the beginning, by going and, and, and speaking truth about, about the broken relationship, about asking for forgiveness for the hatred, and about hopefully inviting whatever was done to oneself, inviting a conversation where that person is able to finally ask for forgiveness. And of course, you can never force that, but at least making sure that in terms of your, as Paul says, be at peace with all people as much as it depends on you or on me. Not harboring that bitterness, letting it go, having God cleanse that. Mm. So even if it's not a demonic bondage, it's at least bondage in the broad sense of the term where I am not living out the kind of life, the kind of kingdom life God would want me be, to be free to do. Sure. It's absolute, it is absolute bondage. Um, you know, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 25 and 26, Paul says, Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your bitterness. The word there is, is paraorgia, which means anger down under. And then he says, Don't give the devil a foothold. So whenever we swallow anger um, and harbor it in our heart and don't release it, we've given the devil a foothold, and that is bondage. But it doesn't mean the devil's living in you or that a demon's on top of you. Uh, it just means that this oppressed world has made inroads into your life that ultimately is traceable back to the kingdom of darkness. And so to that degree, you're in bondage. And I think it's so important to see that you're in bondage. You're being played. You become a pawn. You're playing the part of a fool. He makes you think that you're being empowered by holding this bitterness. It's the greatest delusion in the world. It actually feels like you're punishing them by, by hating them so much, whatever. When in fact, you're being defined by them. They are Lord of your life. They have absolute authority over your life, and you're giving it to them. And so frame that as a warfare thing. And you don't want to be anyone's pawn. You want to be defined by Jesus Christ, no one else, and no other kind of emotion. And so declare war on that. And the way to do it is not pray about it. Whatever demonic power may be there, come against it. But as Paul said, now you need to take the kingdom steps uh, to bring about reconciliation as much as possible, to forgive, to release, uh, and thereby get free. I think it's important to say in this context, too, whenever we're talking about the idea of the concept of forgiveness and that, uh, in some, certain Christian circles, when we talk about that, and, and, you know, come on, forgive, forgive, it can somehow sometimes sound to people as though what was done to them was just not that big a deal. Yeah. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, if someone cuts you off at a stoplight, maybe it's not that big a deal. But if someone's abused you for years, it's a huge deal. 
God weeps over that. So there never should be the, the idea that because we're, we're called to forgiveness, that we're somehow lessening right. the, the damage and, 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 the, and, the, and the atrocity of what's happened there. And clearly we're not saying that because we're called to forgive, that we're in any sense called to trust that person necessarily. No. Just because one is called to not let ourselves be defined by that person does not mean you walk back into that relationship no. unless there is repentance and, and that person coming and, and being broken. It, it's mutual. So very, very clear categories we need there. Forgiveness is just releasing. You just release. It doesn't mean anything else. You just let it go. Good. All right. If God is supposedly all-loving, then why is he against humans loving one another in homosexual relationships? My reason for asking this is because my partner's mother continuously says that we need to find the light and find the right way. But what if I already feel that this is the right way and I'm not lost? Hmm. Senior pastor? <laughs> We've got two minutes. Well, you know, here's, here's the thing. I, I would want to separate uh, in the two minutes we have here. Uh, th th or three. Separate th these two things. One is uh, God is all loving. Uh, absolutely. And that's unconditional, and there's no ifs, ands, and buts. From then things that God approves of or doesn't approve of or things that God sees as ideal or not ideal. Uh, th th because God sees an, uh, a relationship as not ideal does not mean that he doesn't love the people who are in that relationship. Uh, so we need to keep those two things distinct. The reality is that everyone in this room uh, is, has got areas of our life that are non-ideal. That's what the, the term sin, hamartia in, in Greek, means to miss the mark. Uh, unless you are hitting bullseye 24-7, you're missing the mark somewhere, um, and, and that's a non-ideal thing. So God would be working in your life to bring you farther along. Uh, that doesn't mean at all that God doesn't love you. It, the, God's love is absolutely there. His attitude towards you is expressed on Calvary, uh, but it just means that that's not an ideal thing that is there. And so with regard to this, I would say that yeah, God definitely loves uh, the, the people involved in a gay relationship. Um, and can affirm even the positive things that are there. I, I have on my block some uh, gay couples who, actually their relationships puts to shame a lot of heterosexual relationships that I know in terms of considerateness and kindness or whatever. And I don't need to say that, that that's not good. I think it's beautiful. I mean, there's, there's real kindness and love that is shown there. At the same time, I have to be faithful to Scripture, which in Romans 1 tells me that this is not God's ideal. And so I would trust that as, as these people are walking with, with, with the Lord, God will be working in their life, and we're all in process, and they're making a time in their life where, where they'll start to be convicted about this. And that's no different than the fact that we've got people who come to the Lord and are living together in a heterosexual relationship. Uh, sometimes it takes, I, I've had couples who be, have been here for a year, a year and a half, and then some, you know, as God's working on, in their life in different ways, they start to think, is this really what we should be doing? And things begin to change. We're all in process on that. What really grieves me is that the church has a history of making homosexuality sort of the sin par excellence, the deal breaker sin, put it in a different category all by itself. And so the attitude on the part of Christians towards gay people is totally different than what it would be towards people who maybe eat too much or who are greedy or who gossip, uh, who hoard resources, who, who, who maybe have hatred in their heart. Uh, it's, it's a totally different class. These first sins, it's like, well, come on, we're all in process. We've got to just grow out of these, and God's patient because he loves us. But when it comes to that group, all of a sudden, there's a totally different thing going on. And that's just a matter of religious, social. All done? Well, we have free will in heaven, 
If so, if we have free will, will God risk another Eden fiasco? If we don't have free will, are we going to be puppets? It's a very good question. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I'm thinking about it really hard right now. <laughs> In heaven, if free will is allowed, wouldn't it at least set up the possibility of an infinite regress of falls on into eternity? So that God really never has a kingdom that's settled, but he's constantly having to redeem and sins constantly. And if he doesn't want to have that, isn't the only way he can prevent that is by not allowing us this, the possibility of, of sinning and therefore taking the free will away, as Greg said, ability to go that way or that way. Well, can't go that way, sin anymore, so you take that away. But wait, if he can do that in heaven, why in the world didn't he just do that when he began the creation in the first place and saved a whole lot of evil in this planet, right? So it's a very, very difficult question. Greg, what do you think? <laughs> um, okay, we've got the, we've, we've analyzed the question. Um, here's my take on it. And actually, I think Greg has, no, no one I've seen has, has done a better job of answering this in, in his book, Satan, the Problem of Evil. Isn't he nice to me? He's a good guy. He's, he's my covenant. I pay him, but you know, he's still nice <laughs> to me. I researched the book, so I think it's pretty good. Um, freedom is never an end in itself. Freedom was a gift given to humanity in order to allow us the possibility of becoming what God is by nature, namely love. We can become by decision what God is by nature, loving beings. But to do that, of course, God had to also put a time limit on the length of time the freedom would be there, or he'd run into this, this problem of an infinite ongoing possibility of rebellion. And so it seems, uh, Greg and I would absolutely agree on, on the answer to this, that what God has done is he's given freedom to humanity and angels as well. And certain angels have exercised that freedom to rebel against him, some to be faithful. Certain humans to rebel against him, some to be faithful. Uh, but when all is said and done, that freedom is, is used to solidify the characters of the creatures he's given it to. And so we start being free and making our choices. But what we find as we go on in, into life, and certainly on into eternity, is that while once we made our choices, at a certain point that turns around and our choices have made us. And we have either been solidified now into loving creatures or rebellious creatures. Hmm. And I think that's an answer to another really interesting question. Why is it the case that God has a clear redemption plan for human beings, but there's no hint in the scriptures that he has a redemption plan for angels? Um, maybe once upon a time he did, but the angelic fall has happened long ago that, pe that the angels have sorted themselves out character-wise so that either they're the good angels who can do nothing but love God or the evil angels like Satan who can do nothing but rebel against God. And we, we likewise as humans are in the... That's what makes this life, in fact, that's what makes today, whatever today is, Today, right here, right now, and the choices I'm making, absolutely essential to our eternity. Because little choices, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, every little choice we make, moral choice, does something to the core of our beings. It either fits us a little more for heaven or a little more for hell. And it's the sum total of, of those choices, either giving ourselves to God or to the enemy, which is really the kingdom of self, that finally decides our destiny. 
Though Psalms 82 does seem to suggest that there's a class of angels perhaps that are in between mm -hmm. solidification for God or solidification against God, which again shows how little we know about what's going on in the spiritual realm. But you know, uh, it, it, you know Aristotle put it this way, our choices become our habits, our habits become our character, and our character, if we persevere in it, becomes our being. We're in the process of becoming beings. And, and th that's why I call this a probational epic. We're in the process of becoming. And I would say that ultimately in heaven we'll be too free to fall. Because the purpose for the freedom to go this way or that way is to acquire a freedom where you no longer have that choice. Think about it like this. Who's more free? There's a husband who gets married and he goes to the office and for the first year there's a secretary there who's really cute and his marriage is kind of on the rocks and so he has to make a decision. And this girl's secretary really likes him and so he has to make a decision. Should I go this way or that way? And he's tormented. But he makes the right decision. It's hard. It's really hard. But after three or four years, then it becomes more of his nature. The, the longer you go down a road, the more it becomes part of you. And he's choosing it. And now let's say we're, we're 20 years later, and now in whatever situation he's in, uh, there maybe is a very attractive person there who's got the fancy for him, but it's not really even a temptation. He theoretically could still do it. And maybe there's a thought here and there, but it's not a struggle. He is so solidified in his love for his wife, there's not even a pull there. I submit to you that he's far more free now than he was 20 years ago when he was caught in the struggle of going, ooh, this way or that way. Kind of the, the is it Tom Hanks on, on uh, Ma, Mr. Mom? You remember that show? Where he's, I, you know, I shouldn't. Is uh, it Mr. Mom with, with Carrie Gar, and he's in the bathroom, and she's on the bed, and he's trying, should I cheat or not? And he's going through all the pros and cons, and he's just tormented. Well, that's freedom in the sense of being able to go this way or that way, but that's not real freedom. Real freedom is when you've gone through that probationary period and now your character is solidified. I think heaven will be a state where we are now beings, not just who choose to love God, but we are beings whose being is loving God, and therefore there won't be the possibility to fall. All right. Paul, why don't you start with this one? Uh, I am, in my mind, convinced of the seriousness of spiritual warfare, but in my heart I brush it off like it doesn't matter. If God wanted us to fight spiritual battles so much, why doesn't he make it a little more explicitly obvious to someone as challenged as myself? <laughs> I'll put myself in that challenged category then. Uh, I think every time Greg and I teach uh, the course we do it at uh, Bethel, uh, we used to do it every, every year um, in the spring until Greg retired at age 46. <laughs> um, since then, we do it every other year. And it's always surprised me. In fact, I usually comment to the class uh, how sort of uh, disappointed I am in myself that in the intervening six, seven, eight months between us doing the classes, how much I, I've lost or forgotten or not stayed awake to the war. Uh, when we're teaching it every week and reminding a group of 80 students what it means to live in this warfare, it's, it's a little more there every week in my face. But, but I think in our culture, in this culture in particular, it is so easy to go to sleep on this one. So let me say two things about why that is and what we can maybe do to help stay awake. One is to remember that going to sleep on this one is the primary strategy of the enemy in a culture like ours about this topic. John Wesley said this uh, almost 300 years ago when he saw the, the, the modern world arising, and he said what it's going, what's probably going to happen is Satan's tactic in the modern world is going to be to tell us there is no war. Now that's not the tactic in third world context. That's not the tactic in Haiti. People in Haiti know the spiritual realm. 
there his tactic is to produce fear. And so a lot of, lot of physical and spiritual manifestations to produce fear. In our culture, the constant tactic of the enemy is not to show up in any observable way. It's all underground. It's all little thoughts, little strongholds. So that's why scriptures constantly tell us, wake up. Be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer and warfare. And so one thing is, this is just a tactic of the enemy in our culture, in our culture, particularly in America. He's perfected that with the materialism uh, and, and just the, 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 the shroud beneath he, which he hides. But secondly, I think it's also the case that until we experience spiritual warfare, until we experience really anything, it's hard to really believe in it. It sort of stays a theoretical belief. But once you've experienced something, it's hard than just to, to go to sleep on that one. As we enter into spiritual warfare and actually experience the effects of victory, of liberation in our minds, maybe even of, of helping be an agent of God to liberate a brother or sister out of some demonic bondage, it's hard then just to ever let that belief go theoretical again. It's, it's doing war will help us continue to do war well. How do, how do you, uh, as people are listening to that, I'm thinking that maybe they're, they're thinking, well, okay, that'd be great if like all of a sudden you had to deal with a demonized person or whatever. And it was, in fact, me dealing with some overtly demonized people that kind of woke me up to this whole thing. But that's not a routine thing that most Christians go through. So the question would be, how, how do you experience that? Um, how do you stay awake to that? One way of doing this, I think, would be this. Just to realize that there is a spiritual component to most of the ordinary conflicts we go through. And, and to identify it as that. Last week I talked about shooting in both directions. So you have some conflict in your family. You have some conflict with your kids, for example. Uh, do whatever you need to do on a natural level to resolve those conflicts. You dialogue through stuff. Maybe you go to a counselor, whatever you need to do. But, but it helps to stay awake to the warfare by just uh, 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 doing warfare in that context where you pray uh, if there's anything in the spiritual realm that is hassling my family, I come against it in Jesus' name. And, and pray warfare prayers. I also in, in encourage people to, uh, as Paul was saying, get involved in, in Christian ministry. You'll find that people who are on the front lines, who are out there you know, caring for the poor, uh, doing something about homelessness, uh, uh, you know, working at r racial reconciliation, uh, you know, people who are dealing with gangs, who are on the front lines, they have a much easier time staying awake to the reality of warfare because they're in it. Uh, they, they're experiencing it. And so I encourage uh, people, individuals in small groups and others, to, to, to get invested in frontline ministries where, where you're out there in the field. And then bring to that, that ministry a warfare mindset where you're not only dealing with the natural issues that present themselves, but you're praying warfare prayers uh, against the enemy who always uses the circumstances of our life uh, to, to uh, aggravate strongholds and bring conflict and things of that sort. Walk with a warfare mindset and stay awake. All right. All right. How does the Christian concept and teachings on spiritual warfare differ from Islamic ideas on this subject? Huh. Greg, why don't you uh, start? And All right. Just maybe like a, a minute um, Well, you know, I, I, I've read the Quran twice, and I taught world religions for 16 years, and I guess what I would say, but I'm not an expert on Islam, but, and, I, and there's a lot of diversity in, in Islam as there is in Christianity. But on the whole, I'd say this. If you look at uh, 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 Islam and, and the Quran, you have a model of God uh, where everything is absolutely determined by Allah. 
Ologists uh, decrees everything, and so they don't have a, a really a concept of free will. They do have a concept of, of demons, jinn, they're called, um, but uh, even what they do is decreed by God. And so there isn't really uh, an authentic battle going on. Um, they, the, the Quran talks about humans being hassled by these demons, uh, but again, it's all part of God's decree, so it's not, I don't think, warfare in the same sense that the New Testament has it. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, when Greg quit teaching World Religions of Bethel, he passed it to me. And uh, in, in Surah 15, which surahs are like the chapters of the Quran, um, it talks about uh, Iblis, or, or this is the, the Islamic word for Satan. And it's a very interesting story. It's, it's, it talks about Satan's fall. He was one of these jinn uh, who had limited free will, in some sense, uh, because uh, God had created humanity, and, and the sin of Satan was, the, according to, to the Quran, is that God had created human beings and created Adam, and then it asked all the angels to bow down and and basically do reverence to this new creation, and all the angels did that except Satan, who refused to bow down out of jealousy, and this started the rebellion of, of Satan uh, to towards God and and humanity, according to the Quran. But you never get the sense as you read through the Quran in terms of spiritual warfare that we are to do warfare uh, against, against Satan. All we're supposed to do, according to the Quran, is, is beg God to give us relief from Satan. But there's no sense in which we have victory or power over Satan. And it really does tie in with, as Greg mentioned, in the, in the Islamic faith, that God is so all-determining that, that, that uh, there's not a lot of, of ability to do that sort of thing. That's why th 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 there's an uh, expression, I forget what it is in Arabic, but it's said all the time, um, as God wills, as Allah wills. It, it's, it's really kind of a fatalism sort of thing. So there's no concept of, of the people of God partnering with God in order to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, everything that happens is already God's will on earth as it is in he he heaven, even the, the evil stuff that's going on. All right, Paul, one for you here. If Christian adults put on spiritual armor, as Paul described it, how do I protect my young children? Does the armor work for them too? Can children be demonized? Can children of Christians be demonized? How should we pray for our kids? It seems if they hear us praying for their deliverance, this could be psychologically harmful. How many minutes? A couple okay, minutes. By my count, that was five questions, three minutes per question. <laughs> yeah. so, this is a, a, both an a, a important question and, and a tough one. I mean, when we start talking about mm. our kids, uh, I think of my seven and five-year-olds, and what can the enemy do to them? Is it possible for, for children to be um, demonized, to be that subjected to the enemy's uh, powers? Um, you know, if you start with the biblical data, I don't know how you get around that one. Uh, we, we have an encounter of Jesus um, uh, having a father come to him and, and basically bring a demonized young boy who um, has been doing very self-destructive acts, throwing himself into the fire or into water, almost a, a spirit of suicide almost. And Jesus says to the man, how long has this been going on? And, and the man says, since he was a young, young child. So um, Jesus encounters a situation of a child who's oppressed by, by a demonic entity. Um, I think we can say this, however, that there's, there's certainly a picture in, in, the, in the Bible of the idea, uh, and it ties into Greg's idea of, of corporateness, how we are not individuals, but there's a corporate nature to, to our existence. And God also has, a, a, I think, a corporate idea of authority, including protective authority. And I think as Christians' parents do, do warfare, as Christian parents in their own lives bring into their household a, 
a sense of, of inviting God's presence and protection in, there really is a protection that can come to one's child. It doesn't mean that, that we can say that, that no harm will ever befall our children. We know that's not always the case. But it does say that, that in, in, the, in the many variables of life and in the, in the complexities of the spiritual world, that prayer for our kids, that uh, praying the blood of Jesus upon them, that uh, training them up to be spiritual warriors is, is an important uh, responsibility and gift that a parent can give to a child. Um, so, again, there's, there's no formulas here. There's, right. no, there's nothing like that. But there is principles, and one of the principles is, I think, that as, as authorities over our children, we can um, facilitate a, a protective sphere in our home where, where we are doing warfare on, the, on our kids' behalf. And to go to the, the last part of that question about how to pray for, for your kids, uh, it is really important to use wisdom uh, in this. I, I think kids, like the rest of us, can be hassled by demonic forces. Um, and if a parent thinks that, for example, there's one case I, I uh, dealt with a number of years ago of a child who really had some uh, serious and bizarre uh, and kind of sudden behavioral disorders and uh, irrational, you know, phobias mixed with anger and all sorts of stuff. And the parent, at one point, uh, being sincere and wanting to do warfare, laid hands on the child and began to rebuke a demon. You know, any kind of demonic thing that was there. Well, that planted in the kid the idea that he's got a demon, which wasn't what the kid needed at that point. Um, so I think it was wise to do warfare. If there's anything in the spiritual realm, like I said last week, shoot in both directions. Shoot at the natural, shoot at the spiritual. You know, take the kid uh, to the doctor and maybe child psychologist, find out what's going on there, because there can be natural explanations for what's going on. But at the same time, do spiritual warfare. But uh, depending on the age of your child and the relationship you have with your child and all sorts of things, you have to use a lot of wisdom on how you do that. And God doesn't necessarily need you right in the presence of the child to be verbalizing, uh, you know, the warfare stuff you're going at. You, you need to take that into account. And in some cases, I think, and probably in most cases, especially with young children, you, play, you pray quietly behind the door and, and do spiritual warfare. You don't want to be planning these sorts of things uh, in, in uh, the kid's mind that they're demonized. All right. Um, one from this morning, so let me just uh, ask you to tell us about Wicca. Wicca. You know, I don't know much about Wicca. Paul, why don't you take that one? You're an expert on Wicca. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, you can do that in about 30 seconds. Um, you know, Wicca Not is, good. <laughs> there. There's actually a debate um, amongst scholars on the... Wicca, of course, is uh, one of the more common names given to modern-day witchcraft. And there's a, a debate, actually, among scholars in the field as to the history of this thing, because uh, some Wiccans will say that what they are is they'll call themselves also the old religion and argue that this was the, the, the primarily earth-based religion, nature-based religion, way before Christianity, and they're simply trying to recover the, the ancient ways that uh, have been led astray in our culture by Christian thought, and that we should go back to these ancient roots. Um, I know other scholars who argue that what is actually practiced today as modern-day witchcraft and Wicca probably started more realistically within the last hundred years. And it's, it's sort of some ideas maybe drawn from ancient pagan religions, but that uh, the whole modern-day witchcraft movement is, is not at all traceable to, to the ancient days. So there, there's even debate among scholars as to what this thing is. Um, clearly what it is uh, in terms of its actual practice is a focus on 
spirit powers within the realm of nature, um, both individual kind of uh, spirits, but also this sort of idea of a pervading force in nature that sort of uh, subsumes and covers all, all spiritual entities. And one is to try to align oneself with that, and one can make kind of tap into that power. And if one is a uh, good person, one will practice white magic. If one isn't so inclined, one can actually do very destructive things with black magic. But according to scripture, any kind of dabbling in, in, in the nature religions where one does not focus on the creator, but begins to worship aspects of the creation, one is therefore um, moving into the realms of idolatry, divination, and the kind of things that God clearly warned, warned his people against from the Old Testament onward. Uh, so it's, it's, it's nothing to dabble in. Um, it, it, why, why focus on the rather impotent powers of, of, of the spirits of nature when one can, can commune and, and be in relationship with the creator of all of nature? would be perhaps a Christian response. And I just say a, a general word on this is that our culture increasingly, the last quarter of a century, has become uh, obsessed with magic. And there's magic all over the place. I mean, uh, I, I went to Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago uh, and just paged through this book called The Secret because I'm hearing so much about The Secret. And I'd say, first of all, there's nothing secret about the secret. It's, it, it's, it's uh, crass plagiarism. I mean, it, 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 there's nothing new there whatsoever. But it's all about the power of the mind and how you can create your own reality and all this other kind of stuff like that. Uh, our culture is really moving towards that. Uh, it, it, it's a real shift. And I would just encourage kingdom people to you know, know that, while there can be some truth in these things, the secret has some true principles in it, um, our, our focus, our reliance, our confidence is to be in Jesus Christ, not some innate power of the mind or some innate power of nature or, or things of that sort. Uh, the divination and astrology and all that is, is, is really running rampant here. And as Paul said, the Bible uniformly uh, comes against that. When people dial up into the spiritual realm, something out there to tell them about the future or, or whatever, tarot card reading, you don't know what you're dialing up. You don't know who, who's on the other line, and they're very deceptive. They can make things look very, very good. Uh, and so we're going outside our, of our, of our God-given boundaries when we, do, when we engage in that kind of activity. And so I would encourage Christians to totally abstain from that, stick with what God tells us to know and what God tells us to do, and, and build his kingdom. All right. Uh, this is an interesting one. In Genesis 6, the Nephilim were on earth and they had children with women. My question is, are there two types of people, regular humans and then, as it says in Genesis, the heroes of old, men of renown. You can imagine the numerous questions I have if this is true. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the Nevelim? Um, uh, let me take that one first. Uh, the, Genesis 6 is really a bizarre, it's a, it's a really a bizarre, bizarre passage. Um, it's right before the flood, and um, uh, God, the Bible says there that the, the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, which is their word for angels, uh, you know, had intercourse with, with human women and beget these Nephilim who are apparently uh, kind of hybrids, you know, a cross between. They weren't fully human uh, and they weren't fully divine. There's something in between. And the word literally means giants. And then the author adds, these were the, the, the men of renown that are often talked about. And you'll find in a lot of different cultures a sort of echo of this story uh, where they talk about once upon a time there were these beings 
who were these mighty warriors, the titans of ancient Greece, for example, who were, who were sort of divine and, and whatever. And a lot of the stories, that's a positive thing. In the Bible story, it's a negative thing. Um, now, what's important is to know that, that they were destroyed in the flood. The flood wiped out all life on earth except for what uh, God uh, preserved uh, through Noah. And so, so they were done away with. But it does seem that there was this genetic mutation that went on from the intersection of ang fallen angelic uh, uh, beings and human beings. Bizarre stuff. Yeah. But they're not still around. Don't go looking for them. If, if you're interested in, in that uh, ancient Jewish way of seeing uh, the, the pre-flood days, we only have, what, six verses on it in our Bible, Genesis, uh, maybe four, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Um, but in a intertestamental Jewish piece of literature, a very famous one known as First Enoch, uh, there's, there's 96 chapters in, in that uh, Jewish text about these creatures and how... So in, the, in, the, in, in Jesus' day, this teaching was very well known and it was just very quickly alluded to in our, in our book of Genesis. But I think Greg's point is, is absolutely uh, crucial to remember. These beings, not only were the beings wiped away, but as our, our own books of Jude and Second Peter tell us, the angels who did these things were also taken out of the angelic system and were locked up in chains. And so uh, God put a stop to this, took those angels out of the system. It can't happen anymore. Uh, so don't worry. It's bizarre stuff. If faith is a gift from God, why could Christ not do miracles in Nazareth due to his own people's lack of faith? Hmm. What, you want me to take that? You want to take it? All right, yeah. There is a verse, was it Romans, perhaps, where it talks about faith being a gift of God? Ephesians, chapter 2, well, verse two, 6. And um, <laughs> others. Uh, <laughs> Greg, clearly you want to take this question. Uh, sure. You know, faith, faith is a gift of God. I, I, I'm convinced of that. But it doesn't mean that humans don't have anything to do with it. It's not like God coercively gives you faith and you, you can't, uh, um, you know, do anything about that. Uh, if that was true, there would be no free will, and that, not then you're back to the idea that God gives faith to some people but doesn't give it to other people, so God chooses who will be saved who won't be saved, and I, you know, I have a lot of reasons for thinking that that's not true. Uh, faith is a gift from God, but there still is a part in the human heart. I could not believe in Jesus Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So everybody needs the Holy Spirit in their, in their life in order to believe. But it doesn't follow from that, that with the Holy Spirit in your life, you have to believe. I think God is working in the hearts of all people to bring them to faith as much as is possible in their cultural circumstances. But we can quench the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of verses about quenching the Holy Spirit. And so in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 4, it does say that Jesus couldn't do many mighty works in his hometown because of their unbelief. I think the Holy Spirit was working to get those people to have faith, but they suppressed it out of the hardness of their heart. How do you see Christian weaknesses and addictions uh, having spiritual influences? Are these addictions behavior weaknesses, or is this an element of uh, demonic influence? I'll take it. Um, <clears throat> you know, Greg, in his sermons, has encouraged us to always shoot in all directions, to, to have a holistic uh, view of life in, in the spiritual realm. Um, all of us, I, I mean, part of what it means to be caught up in this, this warfare, this in-between times of, of the coming of Jesus, but not the coming, the second coming and the ending of the war, is for us to be um, uh, hooked by the enemy. It's his constant strategy is to find places 
to, to doors that are open in our life to, to produce bondages and addictions, these sorts of things. And clearly not, uh, to have a bondage, to have an addiction does not necessarily equate to being demonized in any sense. It may be. Um, I actually, the way my life got open to the whole realm of spiritual warfare was I was a junior at Bethel College and um, was struggling with a particular quite long-lasting habitual sin in my life. And I'd gone to a, a gentleman um, for, for a, a pr prayer time, a pastor who I, who I knew, and, and he had worked for, for years in Mexico and had, had come in, in contact with a lot of uh, demonic sorts of things. And he began to pray for me. And um, it turned out that there was something in my life that needed to be directly addressed and broken. And I can testify that once that prayer session happened, everything else that, that I'd been doing in my life of trying to cultivate uh, a, an open relationship with God, of trying to discipline myself, finally came to fruition in, in, in over a lot of things that just that prayer needed to be there to break. But I had other friends who had struggles, and it wasn't at all about a demonic entity. The way this gentleman described it to me is all of us have, uh, what he said, five foot 11 problems in life in terms of struggles and, and even addictions sometimes. But if you find yourself struggling in ways and doing the kind of things that the Bible says will bring liberation and still never find freedom, if it seems more like not a five foot 11 problem, kind of a you know, normal size, but 11 foot five problem, you might at least want to consider having a prayer session with some brothers and sisters and seeing if there might be something there. Uh, that, that's easy to take care of. We're, we're called to always be about liberation and, and bringing, um, uh, bringing to bear the power of Jesus in the kingdom to any kind of bondages in people's lives, whether it's a, a direct demon or whether it's just patterns of life that need to be broken. But even when there's, there's a demonic presence behind it, as you're saying was the case with yours, mm -hmm. It's important to remember that that doesn't mean you got this, this you know, demonic virus off your, your back or off your mind. That doesn't mean that everything's fixed. Oh, absolutely. Because whatever, whatever uh, the stronghold was, the thought pattern, the memories, the genetics, whatever it was that, that, that allowed that, that uh, virus to have a place is still there. So it's always important to accompany your spiritual warfare with the discipline of renewing your mind, Absolutely. the discipline of being held accountable to things in your life, and, and uh, uh, those sorts of things. Always be shooting in two directions. If you're a baby Christian or struggling Christian, should you be associating with new or existing friends who are not Christians or living a Christ-like life? Hmm. Well, really fast. Okay, really, really fast. Yeah, I... I it, it, it depends. It depends on you. It depends on your friends. It depends on a lot of things. Um, it, it's uh, very important to know your weak spots, your, your vulnerable spots. When I first became a Christian when I was 17, I had to make a clean break uh, for a period of time with all my old friends. And it wasn't because I thought I was too holy to hang out with them. It's because it's I knew that I couldn't be in a room where they're smoking pot and I'm not going to be a token. It's just, um, I, 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 I couldn't handle that. Now I'd have no problem. But... <laughs> But uh, so you got to know your weak, you know, your, your vulnerable spots. Um, however you handle that, it is very important for you to get network with Christian friends and to get people around you to do life. The, the solo Christian, whether you're a baby or, or whether you've been walking with the Lord for, for a long time, the person who's going solo is in a very vulnerable spot. God never intended the Christian life to be lived in solitude or doing it alone. We're supposed to be a community and have people around us where we do the New Testament one another's. So however you decide... 
you know, uh, wh wh who you can and can't hang out with for a period of time when you're first a Christian. You may need to take a total break. But however you do that, surround yourself with, with, with brothers and sisters who will help you walk out the, the kingdom life. Amen. Amen. Well, when you're pressed, you can do it fast. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> All right. Another really fast one here. Um, these are uh, related. There's two of them here that I'm going to combine. If a person's experiences and messages received during his or her life lead to conclusions inconsistent with Christian beliefs, will they go to hell? Or what about all the people in the Bible before Jesus? Where do they go? You want to take it? Whoa. Uh, let's start with that second one. Um, this is a little difficult for me to do in two minutes. This is my dissertation topic. Uh -huh. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you know too much to say anything relevant. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> You're so smart, Great Paul. excuse. I Greg, would say something say relevant, something. but I'm too say smart. Something. I just used my 30 uh, Okay, right You know, what I'd say is this, that all of us have got lies in our brain. I mean, come on. None of us have a brain that totally aligned with truth. Uh, and those lies always inhibit our relationship with God to various degrees. That's why it's so important to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ and to wash your brain of lies and to install it with truth and all of that. Um, at the same time, what I know is this, that God is the God of love who died for every human being on the planet. He died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The Holy Spirit's working in everyone's heart to bring them to as much truth as they can have, given the, 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 the cultural restraints that, that they're a part of. And I don't believe that anyone is ever damned on the basis of a contingency. That is to say, the happenstance of where they happen to be born or how they were raised or what they were taught. Uh, we are more than just our brains. We are body, soul, and spirit. And I believe that it's, God sees the spirit of a person, whether their, their innermost disposition is open to God or closed to God, and that is what makes them salvageable or not. And God will salvage everybody who can possibly be salvaged. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, it's on that basis, I think, that people in the Old Testament were saved. That tells us that there are people who don't know Jesus, but who, may, who, who still make it into the kingdom. They make it into the kingdom through Jesus, because no one goes to the Father except through Jesus, and yet they didn't know about Jesus. They couldn't have known about Jesus because of when they were born and where they were born and, and things of that sort. So it tells me that I have hope for people who... who whose worldview uh, does not include Christ, but who perhaps have hearts, innermost beings, that are nevertheless open to, to Christ. At the same time, the Bible tells us we're to take it as a matter of urgency to bring the good news to all people at all times and to spread the gospel uh, throughout the world. Outside of the 400 no footnotes in my dissertation, I entirely agree with everything. <laughs> all right. You want to try to do one more really fast? We got two minutes. <laughs> all right. Your time frame, not mine. All right. No. It's probably going to be a... All right, Loser. Satan can only be in one spot at a time, right? Right. If so, does he spend most of his time with important Christian leaders like Billy Graham and Paul Eddy? <laughs> no wonder my life's so easy. <laughs> uh, this is true. When we talk about Satan uh, and God and the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of God and some kind of warfare, we've got to remember, uh, again, they're not co-equal partners uh, in this thing. There's, Satan is a single, solitary, localized, meaning he's not omnipresent, uh, not uh, everywhere uh, at once. Uh, he, he's one angel. Now, he's got an amazing, vast array of associates. Uh, and so oftentimes we'll say, you know, Satan's on me. Well, 
what we mean by that, is that that's, that's, that's a metaphorical way of saying one of his agents maybe is on me. He is actually somewhere, where, who knows. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air. I don't know if he's hanging out with Billy or not. Uh, wherever he is, he, he's, he's giving marching orders to his, his army. Um, you'd certainly think, though, uh, because it got, I, the more I get into this over the last you know, decade of thinking about this warfare stuff, the more I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that Satan thinks like any military strategist thinks. He has a limited number of resources. If, if Revelation's right and only a third of the stars were swept, that means he's, he's outnumbered two to one, praise God, on angels on the good side. Uh, he's got to be careful where he allots his, his, his people. So it makes sense maybe to have a few more around someone like Billy, who if he brings Billy down, is going to be a whole lot more devastating to the kingdom in terms of reputation and such than someone's little grandmother. But maybe not. Maybe that grandmother's prayers uh, yes. are, are doing a whole lot for the kingdom. So who knows how he allots it, but he's not, he's not everywhere present. He has God. finite resources, and so like a good military strategist, he has to ration them out carefully. Uh, it is the case that the, the more of a threat you are to the kingdom of darkness, the more warfare you're going to have to put up with. And so the more careful you have to be on putting on the armor of God and having prayer surrounding you and things of that sort. But it's also very important that we realize that our secularized kind of American way of assessing what is important is not necessarily the spiritual realms. And we're very impressed with the people who are up front and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it could very well be the case that it's a little grandmother praying in a closet that's doing more damage to the kingdom of darkness Amen. than the hero that's up on the platform uh, who's hitting the ball out of the park, but only because the grandmother's praying for him. You see, so you, you have to realize that their way of assessing things isn't necessarily our own. All right. Um, I, I want to tell you that uh, uh, as we're dismissed, we'll have prayer teams up here, and if you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, whether it's spiritual warfare or something else, I encourage you to spend some time in prayer with these folks. If you're here and you're not a surrendered person to Jesus Christ, but there's something in your heart that's saying you ought to be, you ought to be. And I encourage you to not leave in that condition. Come forward, and these folks will be glad to pray with you and, and to talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me just close in this prayer. Father, I just thank you for every person who is in this room uh, listening to this. I thank you for every person who's listening it uh, via the Internet, Lord God. And I pray for both categories of people. Lord, that this would be a message that would not just rest in our brains, but would seep down into our hearts and motivate us to be radical activist warrior followers of Jesus who live our life intentionally under, uh, obedi in obedience to you, waging war against the kingdom of darkness in all that we do and advancing your kingdom of love, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, rest on us and flow through us as we leave this place to build your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time, amen. amen. Go out and build the kingdom. God bless you.